0: Good morning, Good morning. and just a couple of announcements, so locally you guys probably know we sent out an email this week that um, Beverly Atkins, um, Russell and Lori's mother had a significant stroke this week, and she's in the hospital at Memorial, and she is accepting visitors, she's at Memorial Hospital room 112, we want to keep her in our prayers, and if anyone has time this afternoon would like to stop by, so let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your kingdom of love and your principles of love. And as we look around this world and we see the, the um, decay that happens and the sickness, and we realize this is not how you design things, and you long in your heart to come and bring healing and restoration. We uh, lift uh, Beverly up to you and ask that you intervene as you know is best in her circumstance and situation and be with uh, Russell and Lori. To, that we'll have wisdom as they're making decisions uh, this time. Pray that you will be with um, our class as we study and that we will be able to come and know you better. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number uh, 12 in the quarterly the book of Job. And the title is Job's Redeemer. And the uh, memory verse for the week is uh, Isaiah 53, 4, which reads in the New King James, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. What's the message? He knew that we would get it wrong. He, he knew that we would get it wrong. I, I like I, I the emphasis. Here's the NIV version. Surely he took up our infirmities. And carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. What what does it mean, took up our infirmities? What do you think that means, took up our infirmities? What's what's an infirmity? He became a man. He became a man, yes. And what is an infirmity? Weakness. Uh, Burdens. Something that undermines normal function. What is it that is the number one infirmity for the human race? Sin. he who knew no sin became sin for us he took up our I believe it's saying he took up our sinful state our sinful condition he was born in, uh, born of a woman under law Galatians 4, 4 but it says he did this yet we would consider him and he suffered because of it yet we would consider that God was the one that was striking him God was smiting him God was afflicting him that's how we would interpret it. Has that, has that happened in Christianity? The uh, SDE Bible commentary on the Isaiah 53.4 text says the following, The enemy made it appear that the sufferings of Jesus were punishment inflicted upon him by a vengeful God because he was a sinner. If that were true, he could not be the world's redeemer. Thoughts about that? Is it taught in Christianity today that God, in fact, punished Jesus at the cross? This is out of Desire of Ages, page 471. It was generally believed by the Jews that sin is punished in this life. Every affliction was regarded as a penalty of some wrongdoing, either the sufferer himself or his parents made. It is true that all suffering results from the transgression of God's law, but the truth had become perverted. Satan, the author of sin and all its results, had led men to look upon disease and death as proceeding from God, as punishment arbitrarily inflicted on account of sin. I'm going to pause in the middle of this quote. What does arbitrary mean? Without spit out rhyme, or reason. Not inherent. So, for instance, if in our system uh, somebody is convicted of murder... Why is it, and you, if you look in America, some people convicted of murder get 10 years in prison, some get 20 years in prison, some get life in prison, some get the death penalty. Isn't it true? Some get probation. How, how come? How come there's all these different, quote, punishments for the same crime? Why? Because those are arbitrary. They're arbitrary punishments. And Ellen White is saying that Satan makes it appear this is how God does things. There's an arbitrary infliction of punishment for sin. It's non-inherent. Hence, one upon whom great affliction and calamity had fallen had the additional burden of being regarded as a great sinner. Thus the way it was prepared for the Jews to reject Jesus... God had given a lesson designed to prevent this. The history of Job had shown that suffering is inflicted by Satan and overruled by God for the purposes of mercy. And do you remember the statement in Zarephus 7.61? Every sin must meet its punishment urged. Satan, or Zarephus 7.59. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. You ever meditated on that? Thought through. Okay, power. How do we use power? How do we wield power? How does power get? When you think of power, what do we usually think of? Infliction of might, coercive power. White says God doesn't work in this way that compelling power is found only under Satan's government. So if we have this idea that sin requires God to use the power of his majesty to inflict the proper punishment upon the sinners, this is compelling and coercive, and it's Satan's version of God. This is another one. View and Herald, September 7, 1897. God could have destroyed Satan and all his sympathizers as easy as one, can pick up a pebble and cast it to the earth. But by doing so, he would have given a precedent for the exercise of force. All compelling powers found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. He would not work in this line. This principle is holy of Satan's creation. Why will God never work in this line? There's a reason. What happens if he does? All right, let's put it this way. What is it that God wants from us? Love and trust. Can you get love and trust by threatening to kill people who don't love and trust you? You cannot. It absolutely destroys love and trust to say love me and trust me or I will be forced by holiness to kill you. Doesn't work. This is imperial law. This is how human governments work. Only coming back to worship him who made the heavens the earth design law do we see that that when we deviate from his design, it's inherently destructive. There's no arbitrary infliction of punishment. It will destroy us. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. And God has been working through Christ for, for ever since the inception of sin to hold at bay, to intercede, to bring healing, to stop death from happening. He hasn't been using his power to inflict death. So what does the text today prophesy would happen? That Christ would come, he would take up our infirmities for the purpose of healing, overcoming, curing, providing salvation? John three, sixteen and seventeen, for God so loved the world, He gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He did not send him into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Not to condemn, but to save, to heal. And so our text says what would happen is we would take our infirmities to do that, but we would misunderstand and teach that, well, justice required that God inflict, smite, and kill him at the cross. Has this happened? 27 Fundamental Beliefs of the Adventist Church, page 111. For a loving God to maintain his justice and righteousness, the atoning death of Jesus Christ became a moral and legal necessity. God's justice requires that sin be carried to judgment. God must therefore execute judgment on sin, and thus the sinner. In this execution, what's an execution? When the ruling authority kills the criminal. In this execution, the Son of God took our place, the sinner's place, according to God's will. What are they saying here? God, God executed Jesus. The Bible commentary is mistaken. That's correct. They are mistaken. How, 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 do the, how do we get it so opposite? From the B- Bible commentary to the 27 fundamental beliefs. How does that happen? I mean, there's it, it's, it's, it's two antithetical statements. Right. They can't both be true. So the 27 fundamental beliefs is completely wrong, and it's based on the person who wrote that. That is not an inspired text. That's not scripture. And that wasn't Ellen White writing. That was a theologian who commented... It's not even the position, the official voted position of our church in general conference. Uh, They didn't vote that. If you look at the 27 fundamental beliefs, there's one paragraph position, and then there's whole chapters written on what that means, and this is the theologian's view of what he thinks it means. This is out of uh, the Adventist World Review, December 2007, page 40. One of the fundamental problems of the moral influence theory is that it rejects the substitutionary nature of Christ's death. The idea that God had to kill the innocent Instead of the guilty, in order to save us, is considered a violation of justice. Who are they saying killed Jesus here? Yet we esteemed him, stricken of God, smitten. This is exactly what Isaiah prophesied would happen. One other one, this is out of Ministry Magazine, Ministry Magazine, February 2007. Why did God the Father choose a cross to be the instrument of death? Why did he not choose to have Christ instantly beheaded or quickly run through with a spear or sword? Was God unjust in executing judgment on Christ with a cross when he could have done it by beheading a noose, a sword, gas chamber, bolt of lightning, or a lethal injection? Again, who are they teaching killed Christ? This is the infection. This is an infection. It all stems from accepting the wrong law. See, if it is true that God's law functions no different than the types of law human beings make, then it does require God to inflict penalty because human beings can't create space, time, energy, matter, reality. We can only make up rules that have no inherent consequence, and then we, in order to have justice, must punish for breaking the rules. And if you view God's law like that, then you teach this kind of stuff. And the problem is that God's law has been replaced in Christianity with this human law construct. Sunday's lesson. Yes. This concept is so insidious, we wouldn't even accept it in human government. We don't accept punishing someone innocent in the place of, of someone who committed a crime and letting that be called justice. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And think at the lack of reason and logic that requires people to do it. We have to suspend our minds. And so when you teach this kind of stuff, not only does it distort God's character, it teaches Christians not to think. Well, we just have to take that on faith. We don't ask questions. We just believe. And if you think about the conflict between Christ and Satan, battle in the mind, you know that, how much truth is on Satan's side? Zero truth on Satan's side. All truth is on God's side. So if you have a if you're the position where you have no truth on your side, do you want people thinking, investigating, reasoning, looking at evidences, searching for truth? No, you don't want them. You want them to be holy and pious and believing without evidence. Believing on declarations and claims. We believe. Sunday's lesson. Says read Job nineteen, twenty-five through twenty-seven. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Uh, Does this suggest Job did have some knowledge of something beyond life here and now? That a Redeemer was coming? It does suggest Job did know, didn't he? On well, some level, anyway. Some, maybe he didn't know all the details, but on some level he knew a Redeemer was coming. Now, the Hebrew in this translation um, for Redeemer sometimes is also, in other translations, translated defender. Sometimes it's Redeemer, sometimes it's Defender. Many of the footnotes, if you have a Bible that says Redeemer, there'll be a little footnote and it'll say Defender. Well, let's unpack both of those. If we use the word Redeemer in this case, my Redeemer... From what is Job, and you and I, being redeemed? From sin. From sin, she said. Any other thoughts? Redeemed from the condemnation of living on this earth forever. I mean, he's redeemed us to take us to heaven someday. I like that. Yeah, I like that very much. Um, Any other thoughts, comments? Redeemed from Satan's control and lies. Yeah. So, so, and you guys are really talking under that design law model, redeem from corruption, redeem from defects, redeem from pain and suffering, redeem from distortion, redeem from sinfulness, redeem in other words, taking this corrupt, sinful human beings and restoring them back to god 's original design that 's very much design law stuff that 's very much, and that 's really um, how it is in Scripture and what Ellen White uses in her writings to describe it. She says things like this about Christ. He, he redeemed from everything earthly, renewed in the image of God. Redeemed from everything earthly, renewed in the image of God. Or this is, um, what's the abbreviation, F-E? Fundamentals, Fundamentals of Education. Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 291. Jesus died for mankind, and in giving his life, he exalted humanity. In the scale of moral value with God, the Son of the Infinite God clothed his divinity with humanity and submitted to death of the cross that he might become a stepping stone by which humanity might meet with divinity. He made it possible for man to become partaker of the divine nature and escape the corruptions that are in the world. Christ is continually working... See, if you have the penal model, he's working in heaven, going through record books, applying his blood, uh, seeking pardon from the, from the judicial magistrate in heaven, pleading his blood so he won't be wrathful. But no, Christ is continually working to uplift an ennoble man, and he requires that every soul whom he has redeemed from hopeless misery shall cooperate with him. Redeemed from hopeless misery. If we use defender, yes. We have a whole book, Book of Ruth, that explains what it means to redeem. To restore the property to the family that lost it. Did y'all hear that? The whole book of Ruth is is about what it means to to redeem. To restore the property to the family that lost it. And extrapolate that. Take that object lesson, extrapolate it to the problem. Who's the family that lost something? Humanity. Humanity, and what did we lose? We lost our estate. What was our estate? Sinlessness, number one. State of being and and the earth. Sinless. The sinless, perfect earth. And so he came to redeem and give back, man, his perfect estate, his perfect condition of being, his perfect sinless state of functioning, and to heal and restore the earth and give the earth because the, the meek shall inherit the earth. Isn't that cool? That's great. Yeah. And the name Redeemer is the same as in Job. Boaz was the Redeemer. He took the property and gave it to the family of Abimelech, whose widow was Naomi. And we see this object lesson here. And this is, you know, I've come to, you know, some some realization. If you think about how many individuals left Egypt with Moses, you know, they say maybe a million and then how they multiplied over the years, there were millions of individual Jewish people in Old Testament times. Yet we have recorded in Scripture, in individual life stories, very select few stories. And my view is that not only because they're historically true, these things happened in history, but God chose from that history stories that also had relevance as object lessons, like the one here. This is a real story, but as an object lesson for the plan of salvation. And you see much of the plan of salvation be taught out in the history of these stories that we see in these real life things. And so as you want to kind of you know, spread your you know, your, 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 your neural, neural synapses and make some new connections, think through, Okay, that historic, but what's the object lesson? How does that actually teach something about the conflict between Christ and Satan and God's plan to heal? You'll find it's quite fascinating and, and interesting to do that. Uh, we might do that some po- some point. So if we use the, the word defender, from hu- whom is Jesus defending us? If we use defender instead of redeemer, from Satan. The accuser of the brethren. The accuser. I like where you're going with this. And so we read in uh, Christian Education 159, Zechariah, des- description of Joshua, the high priest, is a striking representation of the sinner for whom Christ is mediating, that he may be brought to repentance. Satan is standing at the right hand of the, of the advocate resisting the work of Christ and pleading against him that man is his property since he has chosen him as his ruler. But the defender of man, the restorer, mightier than the mightiest, hears the demands and claims of Satan and answers him, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuked thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those who stood up before him, saying, Take away his filthy garments. And he said to him, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from you, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, Let them see a fair mitre on his head. So forth. What do you hear going on here? To whom is Jesus defending If we accept that it was God who killed Jesus on the cross because God had to punish sin, then Jesus is standing before the Father, pleading his blood so that we will not be punished by God. Did you all hear that? Yeah, that is the classic teaching. If we accept this view that was read earlier that God had to kill Jesus and punish Jesus on the cross, then Jesus is pleading, Father, I've paid the punishment already, and he's pleading to defend us from the Father who would punish us if Jesus didn't pay the punishment for us. That's the classic view. (laughs) This is the question we're talking about. To whom is Christ defending us? Where is the battle between Christ and Satan being fought? our hearts and minds so satan is the father of lies okay what is it that sets us free truth truth okay so think that through satan's the father of lies truth sets us free who would christ be pleading truth to to free from lies that are being told by satan who would he have to plead truth to? Does a father? Is father confused? Wow, you know all these lies the devil's telling me. I'm, I'm just, I'm just so confused. Uh, I need somebody to tell me what the truth is so I can figure it out. Does a father need truth being pled to him? Yes. Who needs truth? Yes, so, do you see this view that when you have Christ pleading, He's always pleading and defending you, to you against the temptation to believe the lies that the devil is telling you? about you (laughs) the lies the devil is telling you about you so i know some of you are already on board Say that makes perfect sense some of you going i really like an ella white quote help me out with that so i've got one for you okay this is that i may know him and it's talking about the same thing about the Joshua the high priest, but she expands it and gives him a little more insight. And he showed me Joshua the high priest, the representative of the people who keep the commandments of God, standing before the angel of the Lord and, stand, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Well, by the way, Satan is standing next to the angel of the Lord and the earlier one standing next to the advocate to resist who? The angel of the Lord or the advocate. Okay, Does this give some indication of as, as what they might be doing? Christ, our high priest, Satan stands before him day and night as the accuser of the brethren. With his masterly power, he presents every objectionable feature of character as sufficient reason for the withdrawal of Christ's protecting power, thus allowing Satan to discourage and destroy those whom he has caused to sin. Where are Satan's arguments having their impact? Is Christ getting discouraged? Is Christ getting destroyed by these arguments? No, who gets discouraged by the devil's arguments? We do. we do. That's exactly right. And so Christ is resisting, fighting against, defending us against. And don't tell me you've never been in that place where you've actually sinned. And then in the aftermath, inside your own head, I'm no good. I've gone too far. The Lord can't love me. This is the final straw. I've committed the unpardonable sin. He'll never take me back. No one would, you've never had that kind of whole spiel going off in your head? Okay, Keep going with the quote. But Christ has made atonement for every sinner. Can we by faith hear our advocate saying, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Who needs to hear this? We do, do. yes. Now Joshua was clothed in filthy garments. The sinners appear before the enemy, who by his masterly deceptive power has led them away from allegiance to God. With garments of sin and shame, the enemy clothes those who have been overpowered by his temptations. And then he declares that it is unfair for Christ to be their light, their defender. Hear the words of Jesus I will blot out his transgressions. I will cover his sins. Who's needing to hear these pleads? See, this is where the battle is. The battle between Christ and Satan wars in your heart and mind. God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. If God is for us, who can be against us? He would not give spare bear a son, but gave him up. How will we not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus He's at the father's right hand and is also interceding for us. You see this theme through scripture. Jesus is never pleading to his father. In fact, Jesus in John 16:26 said, "I will not pray the father for you because the father loves you himself." We have to hear the pleadings of Jesus. He's pleading with you and me. I I love you. Won't you let me heal you? Don't listen to those discouraging words. Everything broken in you, I can fix. Everything dirty in you, I can clean. I can cleanse. I can renew. I can restore. Monday's lesson, third paragraph. Job's complaint that God wasn't a human and therefore couldn't know the woes uh, was answered fully and completely completely by the coming of Jesus and humanity. Any thoughts about this idea, Joe's complaint that God couldn't know his woes? Did he not know the, the sufferings of humanity until he actually came? That's when he found out how bad it was. This is a subtle idea that many Christians have. That's why in, in Catholicism, I've talked to some of my Roman, Roman Catholic friends, and, and why is it that Jesus pleads and Mary pleads? Well, Jesus pleads because he knows how bad it was for us. He suffered here from this, text, from this idea. Okay? And Mary pleads because no one can influence a son like his mother. And so Mary pleads with the son, and, and the son pleads with the father. Adventists don't have Mary pleading. They just have Jesus pleading. Do you think that God learned something new? God, divine being, infinite, and all knowledge, all knowing. If 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 he had to learn something new, then he wasn't all knowing. So Christ learned, and it talks about his learning, as a human, his human self learned. He grew in wisdom and stature and favor. He had to learn how to walk. Does that mean in heaven, his divine self? didn't know how to walk. Well, we actually see that because he appears as a human in the Old Testament and he could walk. He didn't have to learn how to do it. He knew how to do it. But as a human being, he had to develop all of those capacities and abilities, including develop a perfect, sinless character. Hebrews 5.89. It says as Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Once made perfect? Whoa. Made perfect? Once made perfect? What? thought he was always perfect. He was always sinless. Sinless. Bible perfection is about maturity of character. And Christ had to develop a mature, sinless character by the exercise of his human brain in decision-making as he faced temptations as a human. He didn't learn this as a divine being. He learned it as a human being. So Desire of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life. Why does the law require righteousness, a righteous life? What's the reason it requires that? Very simple answer. Somebody asks, why does it require that? For the same reason the law of respiration requires that you breathe. Why does the law of re- respiration require that you breathe? That's so unfair. It would be so nice if I didn't have to. Why does it require it? Because that's how life is built. It's how it's constructed. Now, you're free to deviate from the, the, the law, but the wages of that is death so the law requires righteousness because that is the way god has built his universe to run a perfect character and this man has not to give he cannot meet the claims of god's holy law but christ coming to earth as man notice as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character this he offers as a free gift to all who will receive him now i'm to get to tuesday's lesson second paragraph and listen very carefully because I'm going to ask you, we're going to go through some true and false questions here because this is, is this, there's truth in this paragraph and it's woven together with a lot of falsehood and we're going to have to parse it out. Still, Jesus didn't come to the earth merely to give us an example. Our situation as sinners called for more than just character development, as if reforming our characters and molding us into his image is all that his work as redeemer required. We need more than that. We need a substitute, someone to pay the penalty for our sins. He came not just to live a perfect life as an example to us all, he came also to die the death that we deserve so that his perfect life can be credited to us as our own. So, did you all go, that that, that makes me feel so much better? It's very distressing if you read this, it's very distressing. So, for, let's let's do some true and false. True and false. Jesus had to do more than give us, merely give us an example. True, true or false? True. true. Yes. He did give an example, but it is true. He had to do more than give an example. That's true. True or false? Humanity could not save itself. Only through Jesus could the species be saved. True. true. Okay. True or false? Jesus is our substitute. True. 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 In that, Jesus took upon himself our infirmities, our iniquities, our sinful condition, our sinful flesh, in order to develop a perfect human character, destroy the infection of selfishness, and cure the condition, the human sin condition. So, yes, true. He is our substitute. True or false. It cost God the Father and Jesus a lot to achieve this. True. 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 We uh, We might say a parent who donated a kidney to save their child in renal failure, paid a high price to save their child. Is that a legal price because a price was paid? See, when you use that language, it costs them a lot. They paid a price. Immediately people who are stuck in that imperial law construct think of fines, think of legal payments, not the, the cost of the situation and the condition that required that in order to fix it. It's a different type of cost. True or false? He died so that we could live. That's true, too. Yeah. True or false? He died to pay a legal penalty. False. 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 That's right. That's based on believing his laws function like our laws and that sin must be punished. True or false? Someone had to pay the penalty for our sins. False. False. No penalty was required, but the condition required a remedy, and the only way to achieve the remedy was through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So it was was the purpose of achieving remedy to fix the condition, not for the purpose of paying a penalty. True or false? He died the death we deserve. False. false. See, that's true and false. <laughs> that's true and false. That was a trick one. True and false. It is true that, that, um, that without his death on the cross, we would have died eternally. Right. So that's true. It is false, though, that he died eternally. He didn't die eternally. In fact, Paul specifically states that if Christ has not risen from the dead, we are the men that are without hope. We are the worst off of all. That Christ did rise from the dead. And this language, that the death we deserve. In the sense of, it depends on how you use the which law construct. Okay, if you jump, if you jump off the Empire State Building, what do you actually deserve to happen to you? Gravity. Gravity, which will. <laughs> uh, unless someone intervenes and miraculously intervenes to suspend and restore. (laughs) Okay? Yeah. So there is a way to understand deserve. It's okay. But not in that penal way. So this idea, though, when you recognize that Christ rose again and that the wages of sin is eternal death, eternal non existence, you recognize that this, his resurrection is a nail in the coffin of the legal penal substitution model theology, which claims that Jesus died the same death, the second death, they'll even say, to pay that penalty so, and the reason they believe this is because if he didn't die the second death, and you're under that penal model, then their penalty's not paid. And if Jesus didn't pay the penalty, then we can't have salvation. And so we had to pay it, die the, because the penalty had to be paid. So he had to die it. And they go back and forth on this, but it's not what Scripture teaches. Second I'm Timothy. Yeah, we're we're going to go through all those bullet points. So Second Timothy 1.10, Look at this, Christ, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the scriptures teach you that Christ destroyed death. There's the theology that teaches he died the second death, from which there's no resurrection. So let's look at Scripture. What is the second death according to Scripture? This is Revelation twenty fourteen. Then hate then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. What's the second death? That was a quote from me. I, I, I'm excited. That's was a quote from Scripture. I didn't make that up, so I'll say it again. The lake of fire is the second death, uh, Revelation twenty fourteen. What's the second death? That's what the Bible says, the lake of fire. And what was thrown into the lake of fire, according to that text? Death was thrown in to this fire, which is the second death. Now, get your mind around this. Death is being killed. That's what's happening. Death is being killed. How do you kill death? What kills death? Life. Life. Get your mind. Life kills death. Ooh, now that opens up a whole new... Hope your minds are going... Lake of fire. A, a, a fire. A, a fire that, that that is consuming, maybe. Uh, an eternal fire that never goes out, maybe. any any Any... Fire of love, maybe. Ah, okay. Fire of God's presence. Fire of God's presence. Okay. So... When will it happen that death is killed? This happens. Well, is there a text that teaches us that? First Corinthians fifteen talks about the. Uh, Let me tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep? Will be changed in a flash, twinkling of an eye. When the perishable has put on, has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying is true: Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death has been swallowed. Meaning, death has been destroyed. Now, what destroyed death? What was happening here? Life was being restored, and when we restore life, we destroy death. And it happens in this place called the Lake of Fire. Hebrews 12 29. What's it say about God there in Hebrews 12 20? Our God is a consuming fire. fire. When the Ancient of Days takes his throne in Daniel chapter seven, what comes as a river out from the Ancient of Days? Fire. Fire, and and, and who's standing in it? The All the redeemed are standing in this fire. Isn't this interesting? At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell, what did they see? Fire. Two split tongues, or two streams of fire. The fires of truth and the fires of love, because this is the fire that consumes sin. And remember, at its root element, sin has two roots. Lies. What consumes a lie? Truth. Selfishness. What consumes selfishness? Love. And so the, God's presence is the source of all truth and all love. This is the life-giving glory of God, which is the lake of fire, which is what, death, destroys death. So did Jesus die deviant from God's design? So all those in the lake of fire who are deviant from the design, who are hardened in lies and hardened in selfishness, when they're exposed to unveiled truth and unveiled love, what happens to them? Suffering, agony, and they beg for the mountains to fall on him and hide them from him sits on the throne and so forth. But did Jesus die deviant from God's design? Or did his death perfectly restore God's design in humanity? You think it through. Which which was happening there at the cross? Why do you think Jesus could say, I'm going to die, in three days I'm going to rise again? How could he be so certain? Because he designed the life to begin with. He he knew the restoration back to the original design. has to lead to life. That's right restoring it back to to the source of life and reconnecting humanity, he was going to destroy the infection that brings death and thus he would rise again by restoring God's life-giving character law back into humankind. So, did Christ die the same death the wicked die in the end? If you have the wrong law concept, as we said, you have to think so because it makes you frightened and you'll live in fear that God will still have to punish you if he didn't. But when we come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is and design law, we realize that actually they're quite different, and I'm going to compare them for you. Do you want to make a comment before we do the comparison of the two deaths? If Christ had the confidence that he was going to rise again in three days, why in the Garden of Gethsemane did he say, if possible, let this cup pass from me? What was he experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane? See, he said that based on his knowledge and confidence of what would happen, not because he foresaw in some futuristic, prophetic way, but he said it because he could predict. If I let go of this, can you predict what will happen? What do you predict will happen? Fall the ground. How confident are you? You can say that we'll fall onto the ground. One hundred percent. Do you have the gift of prophecy? That's a future event. How could you possibly know that's going to happen? <clears throat> Because when you understand the law, life becomes very predictable. You can predict what will happen. And I believe that Christ, understanding the law of life, and that what he was here to achieve was to restore the law of life back into the human being and and eliminate the uh, infection that brings death, the law of sin and death, eliminate that, that he said, I'm going to die again, but I will rise again. I'm going to drop this, and it's going to hit the floor. That's how he was predicting it. But the experience of going through it, it would be no different than um, you know that uh, you've got to go get a, a root canal and you're going to get the root canal and you know it's going to be fine afterwards, but what's happening while you're getting the root canal? Well, isn't there any other way? Isn't there some other way we can do this? Please, let's do it some, something else instead. And that's what you see going on in Gethsemane. If it would be possible. If there's any other way to achieve what we're trying to achieve, I'd rather do that because this is awful. And it was awful. Let's look at the contrast between what Christ experienced at the cross and what the wicked experienced at the end. And in the lesson, I've got them bulleted, and I've got the Bible references for each one of these. Christ died trusting the Father. Into your hands, I commend my spirit. Do the wicked die trusting the Father or distrusting the Father? Distrusting the Father. Christ died longing to see the Father's face. My God, my God, why have you... Forsaking me. He, he, he wanted to be in the lake of fire. He wanted his father's presence. Yeah. The wicked die hiding from the father, begging the mountains to follow him and hide him from the one who sits on the throne. Christ died when the father's presence was hidden. Darkness covered the whole earth and his, and his presence. The wicked die when the father's presence is revealed. And there's no longer a veil there. Christ died less than 72 hours. The wicked die eternally. Christ died when love overcame selfishness. The wicked die overcome by selfishness. Quite a difference. But if you look at the Father's actions, what did the Father from heaven choose to do The Father's actions were exactly the same to Christ and to the wicked in the end. And what did the Father choose to do to Christ at the cross? Withdraw. Let him go. Let him go to his choices. He surrendered. He let him go. He abandoned. He forsook. Christ to what? To the decision and the choice that Christ chose for himself. In Gethsemane, Christ is battling. What choice will I make? Will I choose to go back to heaven? And abandon this, this mission? Or will I choose not my will, but the Father's will be done? I choose to commit myself to this cause. And Christ chose his course. No one can take my life. I give it freely. I lay it down. I, he could, I could have called 10,000 angels, he told Peter. But how am I going to complete my mission if I do? So, Father, set Christ free to experience what Christ chose for himself. And Christ chose to finish the work, to destroy the infection, to become the source of salvation for all who will obey him. That's what he chose, and God set him free to experience it. And what does God do to the wicked in the end? He does the exact same thing. The Father lets them go. He surrenders (laughs) them. He abandons and forsakes them. God stops holding at bay the results of what sin does sinners he stopped shielding them from his unveiled presence and glory which is what this whole earth has been shielded if you've read uh, about adam and eve and eden and and what kind of clothing they had before sin and suddenly they were cold and naked and how did that come about and and if you value ellen white's visions every time she comes out of a vision what does she say about this earth dark it's so dark dark. The, the rest of the universe lives in god's unveiled glory this universe doesn't. It's shielded right now. I mean, this, this this earth doesn't. It's shielded right now. And and God, in the end, sets the wicked free, stops shielding, stops intervening, stops holding at bay, and this is his strange act. He lets them go. Yes? If God hadn't let him go, would he have died? That's an interesting question, and I think, uh, what do you all think about that? Christ have died? Is that what she said? Yep. Christ have died eternally? No, 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 not eternally, just on the cross. No, I don't think Christ could have died without the Father surrendering him, because the Father is the source of life. Okay? So that letting him go wasn't, you know, something bad. I mean, it, it, I mean, it was awful, but still, it, it, it was necessary for them to necessary. complete the mission. But it wasn't an infliction, and it wasn't a punishment, and it wasn't an execution. The Romans were executing him. God was not executing him. But if the three are as one, Father, God, and the Holy Spirit, God is more powerful than, than Christ? Well, Remember, on the cross, we're talking his humanity, not his divinity. Don't get that confused. It says in, it says in James chapter 1 that, um, God, it says, um, that God doesn't tempt anyone, neither can he be tempted by evil divinity cannot be tempted but christ was tempted in every way just like we are it wasn't his divine nature that experienced temptation it was his human nature that experienced temptation so think that through and then rephrase your question now but you're saying if god hadn't let christ go right he wouldn't have died yes i I believe that if if god would have kept his life-giving presence connected to christ at that point that christ would not have died he died as as a consequence of that experience there yes It may be analogous to the tree of life. In the description of Eden, they were separated from the tree of life because otherwise they would have lived forever in the sinful, terrible state of what they even worse. Okay? And so Christ separate or God separated himself from humans, both in Eden. As well as on the cross. All the more reason we want to keep that connection with God. Sure, yes. And that connection is established through Christ. Did everybody follow that? What Christ? Is, so the Father, the experience of Christ is completely different than the experience of the wicked in the end. Christ is actually on a mission to achieve a remedy and a cure and fix what's broken. The wicked, and, he's do, and it's an act of love. The wicked are completely consumed by selfishness, but the Father has to basically give each the freedom. Christ was set free to 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 follow through with his choice, and the Father didn't intervene to stop what was happening. And the wicked are ultimately set free to what they've chosen as well. Can you differentiate between that and the death that we see on this earth? Yeah, the death that we see on this earth, in my view, is an artificial state that is not natural, and it's a state of mercy that God permits for the carrying out of the plan of salvation. Um in other words, the whole earth now is an artificial bubble of reality uh, shielded from God's life-giving glory while the plan of salvation is being carried out. And this uh, this sleep death is not the death in which individuality is destroyed. Jesus said in Matthew ten 28, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but cannot destroy the soul. Greek word for soul, psyche, from where you get psychiatry and psychology, means your individuality, your identity. And you remember the computer metaphor we've used before? Body is analogous to hardware soul, psyche, analogous to software, and spirit, panuma, breath, analogous to energy source. And in order to be functional, a human being has to have all three, has to have hardware, software, and an energy source, body, soul, spirit, all three. If you have your computer and you separate and have two, just two out of those three, you have hardware, you have software, but no energy. You have energy and software, but no hardware, so forth. Two out of those three, it's non-functional. And when your computer runs out of power... What state does it go into? Sleep. Sleep mode. And what does the Bible describe this first death, death as? Sleep mode. Now, if you have your computer and it's backed up on a cloud, put your mind around that, guys. <laughs> you backed up on the heavenly, heavenly cloud. You know, the Lamb's book of life, heavenly servers. Okay. Backed up. This went, don't be afraid of the one who destroyed the body. can't destroy the psyche. So some, your, your, your actual little computer is backed up on a cloud and somebody steals your device and, 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 and crushes it and destroys it and melts it in a fire. That device physically is gone. You're not really that distraught. You go over to the store, buy a new hardware, connect to the cloud, download, and what did you just do? Resurrected your computer. That's what you just did. And thus, it says in Thessalonians, remember in the Thessalonians passage, it is very profound when Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope about those who have fallen asleep. Okay? We know that the Lord shall return and bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Verse two later. The dead in Christ, with the voice of the archangel, trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Wait a second. Here in one passage, the dead in Christ are coming down from heaven with Christ and coming up out of the grave. In the same passage, what's going on? He's bringing his heavenly servers, the Lamb's Book of Life, where the individualities and identities of all the righteous are safe and secure with Christ in heaven. He brings them back. We get upgrades, hardware upgrades. You know, as I say many times when I look in the mirror, I'm glad to know this is not as good as the Lord can do. (laughs) and the older you get the more glad you're going to be Okay, okay, and uh, so we get a hardware upgrade perfect sinless bodies the glorified body and he downloads the individuality and breath of life and boom we're resurrected we live again and so I believe that what we call death on this earth is not the punishment for sin this is an intermediate state a state of emergency if you will artificially allowed for by God to permit the plan of salvation to be carried out on earth did you say, is God letting us go or not letting us go? He's not letting us go at all, no. No, no, because when we die, our, our our souls, our individuality, our psyche are safe and secure with Christ in heaven. They're not let go, they're protected. And this is where, we look in the lesson, One, I don't know which day it was, I can't find it right now, but it talked in, the, in there about the promise of eternal life. Do we have the promise of eternal life? This is a subtle distortion. It said, Jesus is saying in John 73, This is the promise of eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou sent. Is that what Jesus said? This is the promise of eternal life. If you know God, you've got the promise of eternal life. Or this is eternal life. Jesus said those who die, if they believe in him, will never die. Okay? Biblical death for sin, the wages of sin is death, is not the sleep death. It is that second death we just talked about, the death in which individuality is eternally gone and wiped out and there's no backup copies on the heavenly servers. You're gone from existence. That's eternal death. That's the wages of sin that corrupts and destroys the in, the, the soul, the identity, the personhood. That's the wages of sin death. This first death is not a punishment for sin. It is a, a state of security, if you will, a state of safety that the righteous can, Jesus uh Old Testament God said to Daniel, You're going to sleep in the dust until the resurrection. And so it's a state of mercy. That backup is true for the righteous and the wicked. Their psyche's will be restored just as they were when they went to sleep in death. And that's true too at the end of the thousand years. They don't get hardware upgrades though. Right. I just wonder how we're ever going to recognize each other in eternity once we get our upgrades. Because we keep some features of our. Actually, we are told that we. But not just care, we keep physical features that are similar so that we are identifiable and we recognize each other. Yeah. That's um, like Christ is different after his resurrection. <laughs> in Wednesday's lesson, the first paragraph states it was for sin, for the sin of all humans who ever lived that Jesus died on the cross. And I found it very interesting that the quarterly this time used the singular. Most of the time I've read in the past, they would say it was for the sins of the world. But this time they use the singular, very, and, and, it's, and it's actually, I think, much more accurate and correct. <laughs> Christ died for the sin, the sinfulness of the world, not for the acts or behaviors, bad deeds of the world. <laughs> and since we're getting a little time, let's jump into Thursday's lesson. Last paragraph says, At the cross, Jesus paid the legal penalty for sin, thus reconciling the falling world to God. Though we are sinners, condemned to, to death, by faith, we can have the promise of eternal life. There's that promise part I was telling you about. Now, Condemned by whom? So, I've gone through it with you today. In the last few moments, I'm going to put it back to you, and I want you to analyze that and tell me, what are your concerns with this? At the cross, Jesus paid the legal penalty for sin, thus reconciling the fallen world to God. Though we are sinners condemned by de- to death, by faith, we can have the promise of eternal life. So, Wendell's first question is, condemned by whom? By what? What's the condemnation? Our condition. Ah. We're condemned by? So uh, uh, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. An HIV-infected man and woman get together and have a baby born HIV-infected, the baby is born with a terminal condition. The condition is terminal. They are not condemned by the ruling authority with a death sentence that had to be carried out by the government. We are born with a condition we didn't choose that is terminal, yet through Christ there's a remedy free for all to partake. There is no legal penalty for sin. Yes. Yeah, so first, is there a legal penalty? If so, who's, to whom is the penalty paid? I asked this with some of the leading theologians in this community in the conference a few years back. And the answer was, I said, is, is he paying the penalty to, to, to God? Did God require payment? And they immediately said, no, no, no. I said, well, who's the penalty paid? They said, the law. And I said, and the law is a transcript of God's character. So, you know, you're doing a two step here. They didn't like the answer. So if it's paid to God in the law, they'll think through the meaning. If the penalty, which is the blood payment, which is God, of the life of Jesus, his, his sinless life had to be paid, and it's, it's paid to either God or to the law, then what is the barrier to our salvation? God. The legal penalty, the wrath of God, and this is why they teach the wrath of God must be propitiated by the blood of Jesus and so forth and so on. No, the, John the Baptist was right when he said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's our sin that is the barrier. There's nothing in God that obstructs him from letting us come home. There's something in us that prevents us from being capable of living in his presence without re- healing and restoration. So, so what law construct teaches legal penalty? That's how human laws work. Again, come back and be confused Just say, okay, what law? Am I am I looking at God's law as just a system of rules that require punishment? Or am I looking at God as creator, designer and his laws are the protocols upon which reality function? It will always be clear if you do that. Where did this idea that God's law functions like human law, imposed rules, come from? Where would that originate? Satan. Satan. Satan himself. Exactly right. That began in heaven. And it's the same controversy running down through history. And so did you notice that implication there? Um, what's implied by the idea that paying the penalty reconciles, reconciles the fallen world to God? That you've got to change God somehow. something else. That's exactly right. That God needs changing. John 8, 11, the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. God is not in the condemning business. That's right. Because, see, this is how I explain it. When, when he says to the woman caught in adultery, I know where you were just a few moments ago. I know what you were doing just a few moments ago. And had you not been caught, and I don't condemn you because had you not been caught and brought out in front of me, you would have gone home with your head hung low Consumed with guilt, consumed with shame, feeling horrible about yourself on the inside, feeling dirty, feeling outcast, you would have, because what you were doing was deviating from my design for relationships. And whenever you do that, it sears your conscience, it warps your character, it hardens your heart. It was destroying. I don't condemn you because there's no need to condemn you because you're destroying yourself. Go and live in harmony with my design. Go and sin no more. That's what he's saying. Yes. If God was executing Jesus, there would be no hope for resurrection, right? Well, in the legal penal model, they, there's multiple loopholes as to why that happened. <laughs> and the, the, the classic loophole is, Jesus felt and believed like it was the eternal second death and therefore it counted as the insert, because for him he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb and therefore he was willing to die eternally for us even though he didn't die eternally and because he felt and was willing to therefore it was equal to the second death. That's like somebody on death row here in Tennessee for murder and we uh, put him in the lethal uh, the chamber where they get the lethal injection and instead of giving the lethal injection we have an anesthesiologist put him to sleep and they put him to sleep for two days and wake him up two days or three days later and we say well he thought he was going to die so the penalty of the law has been fulfilled how many people in tennessee would go for that we just put them to sleep for three days and then and then wake them up and they they've suffered the death penalty see the legal model is corrupt amen it doesn't make any sense at all for anybody who thinks okay but they have multiple loopholes behind that that's that's what they do our gracious heavenly father we thank you so much that you sent Jesus to re- reveal the truth, but to do so much more than to reveal the truth, to win the victory over this condition of heart, mind, character that we could never fix, that Jesus loved perfectly and, and sacrificed himself for the purpose of destroying that, that deep desire to protect ourselves and, and to hurt others to protect self, Lord. Now we know that we can't fix ourselves, but through the Holy Spirit, it will take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us. So it's no longer sinful, selfish me living, but you the lover of souls living within us, that we may leave this place loving you and loving others more than self. We pray in your holy name. Amen.